Okay, good morning, good morning, good morning, good morning, good morning. Let's get this show on the road. It's not a show, but it's a worship service, but you know what I mean. Matthew chapter 23 is where we're at. Uh, Happy Father's Day, as I said earlier. My children blessed me as a dad by uh, one wetting his bed and the other waking up the crack of dawn. So, good to be a dad. (laughs) Woohoo! It was a good reminder. We're in Matthew chapter 23. We're ending 23, which is really um, the ending of a kind of a three-part mini-series within Matthew. Uh, next week, it's going to get uh, really intense for uh, several weeks, the end of June and then uh, towards the uh, most of July. We're going to talk about end times. Uh, it gets uh, it's a lot, so you want to be here. Bring a notepad. There's going to be a lot of stuff in there, uh, but we are ending what is a, a short series on bad leaders. So if you'd follow along with me, I'm going to read in Matthew chapter 23, uh, verse 33 to 39. I know I have uh, backtracked a little bit, and I'm reading or beginning in a verse that's not a paragraph in your Bible, but considering there's no paragraphs in the Greek text, uh, don't worry about it. Verse 33 is where I'm starting. It says this, Jesus speaking about and to uh, scribes and Pharisees, as well as to his crowds and disciples, but directly to them says, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of innocent Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murder between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, You'll not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Let me pray so I don't mess this up. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that though there is much about you that remains a mystery, there is much that you have revealed to us. And so it is that that we spend our time on this morning. Holy Spirit, would you please just move me out of the way. Speak the words that you need to speak, whether they're the words I've written or not words of conviction, or words of comfort. But lift the veil over all of our hearts and help us to hear You. Lead us to the cross where we find forgiveness and hope and power. It is in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. So, love and bad leaders. Um, Jesus spends much of the final week of His life on earth in the temple, which is the heart of Jerusalem. It is a, a place that at age 12, recorded in the Gospel of Luke, he called his father's house. And in his last lecture, he describes and lays out some scathing condemnations on the Jewish failure in terms of leadership, those men who are supposed to be leading those people, the people of God, to God, and are leading Him away. And they have rejected Him completely. And so He is 
just laying out all of, really since chapter 21, pretty directly, uh, some judgments and condemnations. And as He is the Son of God, Jesus' words really give us a picture of the heart of God Himself, of, of what He feels about sin. And we see that God hates sin, uh, and that He is grieved by sin, and yet um, there's this sense of love that He still has, uh, which is uh, really uncharacteristic of, of us at all. But we see that Jesus speaks some very direct words, and we would say that it's actually loving for Him to speak these hard words to bad leaders for the purpose of repentance, for the purpose of them turning away from their sin and turning toward God where there is joy. We also see that it's even more loving for Jesus to speak about these bad leaders to the crowds and to His disciples for the purpose of their protection. So you have Him speaking to leaders, and you have Him speaking to those who follow those leaders, and they're for really different purposes. And if you've uh, seen the recent movie American Sniper, I thought it was a great movie. I didn't read the book, but it's about uh, a true story about um, a man who was a, a military sniper. In the movie, though, there's a conversation between this man and his dad, actually his father and his two sons. They've just gotten in a fight. The youngest got in a fight and the oldest um, finished it. Uh, in defense of him. And the father imparts some wisdom to his sons regarding bullies at school. And he says, basically, that there are three kinds of people in the world. There are wolves, sheepdogs, and sheep. Now, bad leaders um, and false teachers are often identified as wolves in the Bible. Wolves eat sheep. It's logical. In Matthew 7 and in Matthew 10, Jesus had warned against wolves, and He'd warned against specifically wolves in sheep's clothing. And these warnings are not just for pastors, and they're not just for leaders. Therefore, anyone and everyone, including parents, many Christians, who is chosen by God to shepherd another heart. Now, wolves or perhaps rabid sheepdogs would be another category, have and will rise inside the church. And they have and will rise in our community. And they have and will rise even in our own families. And if these wolves are not confronted, they will lead those in our care away from the truth certain death. Now, we don't play with wolves. Ministering to a, a broken sheep, hurting sheep, is very different than ministering to a wolf. You don't really minister to a wolf. You kill wolves. You shoot wolves. You expose wolves for what they are. And so, whether you are a man or or a woman, or a mom, or a dad, or husband, or wife, or grandma, or grandpa, single married, young or old, I hope that we all are equipped to become sword-wielding wolf slayers. 
for our own protection and for the glory of God. But we don't slay wolves or expose wolves or confront wolves in hopes of building trophy rooms full of wolf heads where we can brag about all the bad churches and bad leaders and bad people and bad theologies that we've killed. That's not the point. We don't speak hard words for ourselves. We don't speak hard words because we just hate. We speak hard words to bad leaders because we love the Lord and we love His people. The question is, how do you do that without sinning? How do you expose bad leadership or bad teaching without being bad yourself? Well, Jesus gives us a pretty clear picture here, I think, on how to do that. He shows us how to warn about bad leadership without sin. He shows us how to weep over bad leadership without pretense or faking it. And He's going to show us what is probably the most difficult thing is how to wait under bad leadership without fear, but with certain hope. So let's break it down a little bit and see how it applies to us. And I will again caution all of us to remind or be reminded that um, this isn't just about bad leaders out there. That's all I'll say. As Jesus finishes his series of woes that Brian talked about last week, we see that bad leaders are being warned about the eternal cost of not following Jesus. And just like John the Baptist, Jesus speaks some very direct words that may make us uncomfortable when we think about Jesus meek and mild saying them. He says, you serpents, you serpents, you snakes, you brood of vipers, how are you going to escape being sentenced to hell? That's a rhetorical question. By rhetorical I mean Jesus just said, you guys are stinking going to hell. What he just said. That makes us uncomfortable. We don't like to talk about hell, though Jesus talked about it a lot as an expression of God's judgment. Now, translated very simply, what Jesus is telling bad leaders who are unrepentant that you're not going to escape God's wrath. You're just not. It might surprise us, of course, that Jesus would use such strong language. I mean, if you look at it, he compares these guys to serpents like Satan and murderers like Cain. It didn't get much worse than that. He declares them in, in making those comparisons to be just flat out wicked, insubordinate, deceivers, twisters of God's word who worship falsely. Now, let's remember. These are the religious guys. These are the guys who have memorized large portions of Scripture. These are not just your average irreligious sinner just indulging in the world. These are religious sinners indulging in self-righteousness. He tells them that it is going to be impossible for you to escape being sentenced to hell should you continue this path. And his rhetorical question, as I said, reveals Jesus' belief that these religious guys are going to die in their sin apart from God in the same way that these religious guys believe 
sinners are going to die apart from God. It's the exact same. But he gives us a model here, I believe, on how to confront these bad leaders. And we see that bad leaders must be warned directly. And they must be warned specifically. And at times they must be warned publicly and at all times biblically in love. What do all these things mean? Well, when we're going to warn a bad leader, we're going to confront a bad leader, Jesus does it in the temple directly face to face. It is near impossible, maybe even undesirable for us to do much face to face. A phone call is pretty good these days. Most of our communication, and dare I say, most of our confrontation comes through text messaging, email, and Facebook messages. Jesus is face to face, so much so when they come to arrest him later uh, as the night he is betrayed and he's arrested, he says, why are you coming now? You could have arrested me at any time when I was face to face with you basically in the temple. Jesus is direct. And our confrontation to bad leaders, whether it be a pastor or a parent or a brother or a friend, needs to be face to face. And Facebook's text messages and emails don't count unless it is, let's get coffee. Direct. We have a lot of fear in that. And we use that fear to justify a really... Um, unbiblical way to confront someone in sin. And dare I say that our social media culture, which is the culture we live in, and it's there and it's not going to, it's just going to grow in its way, I actually think hinders us from being biblical in our interactions. So we have to be thoughtful about that. Jesus says, look, direct, face to face. He's talking directly to him, but he also talks very specifically. He talks specifically about Naming the offense. We saw last week, he said, look, you guys are hypocrites. And it's very easy for us to walk up and say, yeah, you're a hypocrite. That's not what Jesus does. Because you guys are hypocritical. You're hypocritical in this way. You're hypocritical in this way. You're hypocritical in this way. You're hypocritical in this way seven times. Very specific about where they are being hypocritical. We prefer to do like the hand grenade confrontation, right? They run away, right? You just say it and run. Jesus is sitting right there, face to face, directly being very specific. Here is where you are on the path of destruction. This is where you are going wrong. This is where you are out of line with the gospel. Now, he also is very biblical. Now why would, duh, no, no duh. And here's why. Did you realize that most of our confrontations are not biblical? And what I mean by that is that we're called to call attention or to confront that which is biblically condemned, not just that which is personally offensive. Does that make sense? There's a lot of times that we just don't like people. Their personalities bug us. The way they said something irritates us. But it wasn't sinful. 
And you may want to confront them because you're like, ah, maybe you could have said it this way because it kind of bothered me. That's a real personal thing. That's very different than what Jesus is doing in warning a bad leader. He says, this is where you have sinned. This is where you are dishonoring God. This is where you are greedy. This is where you are not exercising self-control. This is where you are not believing the Gospel. Remember, these are not just irreligious guys who are indulging in substances or sexual you know, promiscuity or whatever. These are guys who are running away from God through being good. And He tells them that. Jesus is biblical in His confrontation, which means He knows His Bible and He specifically says, this is where you are wrong. And I would encourage all of us to not confront anyone in sin unless you can open your Bible and identify what you're talking about. But I think the most disturbing thing for us, and actually the most confusing thing for us, is that he addresses it publicly. Uh, he does do it directly, face to face, but he addresses it publicly, and I am under the um, personal opinion that we are to address uh, sin as publicly as it is committed. And so if you are addressing a false teacher, for example, to go to him privately is a good beginning, but more than likely it will not end there. Jesus is speaking publicly. Jesus is naming names, as Paul does in his letters. Actually names guys that he has cast out to Satan, guys that have abandoned him and gone after the world. Letters that will be read in the church and circulated to other churches. There is a time and a place at times to speak publicly in such a way to name names and specify sins. And the reason why is our goal is not just to have bad leaders exposed and hopefully have them repent. It is to literally put the fear of God in people. And that begins at leadership. What am I saying? Leadership, whether it be a pastor or a parent, or any other, needs to be held accountable and at times needs to be held accountable publicly. Paul says it in his letter to Timothy, a letter to a young pastor. He says this about elders. Do not admit a charge against any elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. And for those who persist in sin, who is he talking about? People? No, elders. Those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. Rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. And in the presence of God, and of Christ Jesus, and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. There's a time and a place where we have to confront publicly. And you've seen it probably in recent years with uh, the culture we live in, and pastors who are... Um, well-known or have large ministries and they end up falling as a result of rebuke that comes from public forums like Facebook, Twitter, blogs, whatever. And in some ways we go, well, that is right because those leaders leverage those same tools to have their message put out there and so we have to respond accordingly. But what you've seen in many ways is people sinfully rush to a public forum in order to bring somebody down. 
So there is a time and a place to do something publicly, but you have to ask yourself, what is the goal of doing that? Is the goal to honor God by exposing bad teaching, or is it to punish that bad leader? Because one of those you have the responsibility to do, and the other you don't. I think it's important that it says here at the end of that passage in Timothy, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging and doing nothing out of partiality. And the reason being that it's very easy to dismiss those who um, we've heard are repentant or those whom have done such good things in the past that surely we can just overlook this. It's loving to warn bad leaders and it's even more loving to let the church hear those warnings at times. But the warning is not just for the leaders as I've said just as these bad leaders are being warned about the cost of not following Jesus, the disciples who are being taught are being warned about the cost of following Jesus. See, at times, Christians, if they're going to warn the bad leaders directly or others about bad leaders, as Jesus is doing both, Christians have a responsibility to be the prophet at times. And if you've done any kind of survey of prophets in the Old Testament, um, it's not a real joy to be a prophet. Most of the prophets were um, killed. Most of the prophets were run out of town. Most of the prophets, like John the Baptist being the most recent one from here, and Jesus, who will soon die for the words he's speaking here, were the ones that confronted bad leaders, whether it be governmental, political, or religious, and said, the Lord says you are sinning. They would do it directly, they would do it specifically, they would do it biblically, and then they would be killed. It is not fun to be a prophet. And if you have fun being a prophet, if you enjoy rebuking people, you're screwed up. Jesus doesn't take joy in admonishing, rebuking, and, and speaking truth that He knows is going to be hard to receive but it's right to do it. Being a prophet is not popular. It is not comfortable. It is not enjoyable. Prophets are hated. Prophets are marginalized. Prophets are killed. But prophets are responsible to speak what God has told them to say. And if you don't want to be a prophet, don't read this. Because once you read this, you're accountable especially to speak it to brothers and sisters in Christ. And at times, just as Paul confronted Peter in the book of Galatians, right? Paul, the, the new guy on the block, former murderer, killed Christians, I'm a Christian now, woohoo! And you got Peter, like, super apostle, yeah, I know, I deny Jesus, but super apostle, leader of the church, and he walks in, and as soon as Paul walks in with a bunch of Gentiles, Peter gets up for meeting with Gentiles, right? I'm not going to eat with them. And Paul stands up and goes, man, you're living, you're out of line with the gospel. Confronting him. Think that was easy? No. But Paul had a responsibility to speak the truth. So at times it's not just, dude, you're on the path of destruction because you are giving yourself over to pornography. At times it's, dude, you're on the path of destruction because you think you're saving yourself and doing your good works. We're not responsible to save the world by 
changing, removing, or otherwise stopping a bad leader. People get confused. Like, like it's our job to get rid of the bad leader. That's not your job. Your job is not to get rid of the bad leader. Your job is not to change the bad leader, though you may hope for that. Your job is to be God's voice and speak what He warns us about. The prophet in Ezekiel 33, which I'm sure is a passage you often read in your spare time, verse 1-6 through speaks to the prophet. Here's what he says. Describing a prophetic responsibility. It says, The word of the Lord came to me, Ezekiel speaking, Son of man, speak to your people and say to them, If I bring the sword upon a land, and the people of the land take a man from among them and make them their watchman. you got a watchman here. And if he sees the sword coming upon the land and blows the trumpet and warns the people, And if anyone who hears the sound of the trumpet does not take warning, and the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be on his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet, and he did not take warning. His blood shall be upon himself. What does it tell you? As the watchman, you see someone going down the path of destruction. You see the destruction on the horizon. And you go, stop! What are you doing? This is not what the Lord wants for you. This is going to destroy XYZ. This is bad. Turn back now. Like blow the trumpet. And they go, whatever. And their life ends up in a shipwreck. The blood is not on your hands. You fulfilled your responsibility. It wasn't to grab on and stop them. Wasn't to keep screaming them every opportunity you got. Was to warn them. But notice what he says next. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet, so that the people are not warned, and the sword comes and takes any one of them, that person is taken away in his iniquity and his sin. And, or but, his blood I'll require at the watchman's hand. So the destruction comes. They're still responsible for making their choices, but because you didn't warn them, you're now responsible too. So that gives you some level of burden as the church. If our leaders start teaching crazily and you sit there and say nothing, guess who is also culpable? No one wants to be the prophet. But God has called us to speak the words that He has spoken. Not just our own words, but to speak the words that He has spoken. And we don't have the ability to find every bad leader there is. But there are certain leaders that come across our path. Certain people. not talking about just pastors. Friends, husbands, mothers, fathers, wives, relatives that are leading their families poorly. And guess what? Who's responsible? You. You don't have the ability to find every bad leader, and you don't have the power. You do not have the power to stop them. But you have the responsibility to warn them. You have the responsibility to warn the bad leader that they're on the path of destruction, whether that path is paved in self-righteousness or self-indulgence. Either one. 
So we are called to warn, and it is possible to do it without sin. But Jesus doesn't stop there. Immediately following his decisive judgment on the leaders of Judaism, Jesus cries over the city. He weeps over bad leaders without pretense. What I mean by that, he's not faking it. It's not fake tears he's producing. He is truly grieved by the city. He not only warns bad leaders, he weeps over them. He says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, exclamation point. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing, exclamation point. See, your house is left to you desolate. Jesus weeps over bad leaders because he weeps for what Jerusalem could have been. What it could have been. It's like seeing a family that's broken and going, gosh, if only. And instead of just being like, dude, you suck. I knew you should have done that. Man, I told you so. Blah, blah, blah. It's, oh. He's weeping for the vision of what could have been. He's not just disgusted by what he sees. He, he's saddened by what was possible to be repented of. And while he's angered by their disobedience, which is right, it's, it's right to be angry with sin. That's Don't get me wrong. But he is weeping because they won't receive his love. He doesn't say, like, oh, Jerusalem, you only would have stinking listened. He says, how many times would I have gathered you like a mother bird gathers its brood? How many times? He weeps because they wouldn't receive his love. He also weeps for what Jerusalem is right now. Instead of a a God-glorifying city that received and proclaimed God's message, they have become characterized as a city that kills God's messengers. And Jesus um, holds them fully responsible for the rebellion. He doesn't say, oh, I was a couple more messengers, it would have worked. I know if you had more time or if I would have spoke more clearly. He says, they are not willing. They're not willing. This is rebellion, not just, oh, that's, that's sad. This is rebellion. And so he weeps that they would not receive his admonishment. They wouldn't receive his correction. Well, the Proverbs talk about like soothing are the wounds of a friend. I think you could tell a lot about your heart when a friend who loves you, you know loves you, right? They love you. They're for you. And they come and say, dude, I think you're off. How do you respond? You know how much courage it took for them to say something? They've been watching and and probably weeping. Now they're trying to, to warn you in love. But Jesus weeps because they won't receive it. They won't listen. And finally, he weeps because of what Jerusalem is going to become. Um... 
Jesus states that desolation is coming. And we'll see over the next couple weeks, uh, I'm going to spend a lot of time uh, in history uh, from what happened in uh, Jerusalem uh, from about 60 to 70 A.D. And, it, and it's, it's incredibly sad and, and dark and horrible. Um, there's a desolation coming for Jerusalem and for the temple in particular. And it will literally be made desolate in AD 70. And I think it's noteworthy about how Jesus describes it. Um, he says um, in verse 38, he says, See your house. Speaking of the temple, you'll notice that he uh, doesn't say the Father's house. It's always been called the Father's house. It was called the Father's house from when he was age 12. God called it my house often. But what he says here in verse 38, see your house is left to you desolate. You wanted a family without me? You want a marriage without me? You want a ministry and a church without me? Here you go. God's presence has left the temple. And Jesus walking out at the end of this passage is the last time he will be there before it's destroyed. Jerusalem didn't fall because it was attacked by Rome. It fell because the presence of God had departed. And you can say the same about any church that's fallen, any family that's fallen apart. You ask yourself, where was the Lord? Basically, like the Jewish people here, Jesus is weeping because they wanted everything uh, that God had to give, but they didn't want God. They wanted all the joy that's found with God without God. They want all the prosperity they can have that God promises, but without God, really. And so he gives it to them, and it leads to their destruction. And you begin to think about what that means for my own life. Do I really want God at the center of my life? And is he really the center? Because if not, he'll say, hey, I have your church. Hey, my church. I have your family. Hey, my family. And see what happens. Now, I think it's quite natural for us to um, condemn bad leaders, to criticize bad leaders, to call out bad leaders. In other words, even if we don't do it publicly, it's easy for us to do it. And, and the reason why, because it feels good. That's the pride in us. There's a little bit of us that likes to see, like, you know, a car crash. A little bit likes to see the destruction when we're not being destroyed. We, we, um, it feels good when, when they get theirs. Feels right. Feels just. Yes, justice. It's not natural for us to weep. Especially for um, the fall of bad leaders and for the damage that their sin does. And our failure to do that, our failure to weep, I think is a reflection more of our own hearts than anything else. Um, if you recall, once Jesus was um, condemned for healing a, a man's withered hand on the Sabbath, right? The Pharisees were like, oh, you can't heal on the Sabbath? And he's like, whatever. But in Mark, the same story is recorded, and when they confront him and say, Jesus, you can't heal a withered man hand on the Sabbath, and, or a withered hand on the Sabbath, and 
Jesus says this, that he, when they said that, he looked around at them with anger. You go, yeah, that's right. How can you not heal a man? But then it says, grieved at their hardness of heart. So I think we're really good at anger. Like, that's easy for us. But we're not very good at grief. And we're certainly not very good at both of those. I believe we ought to get angry at bad leaders. We ought to get angry at sin. But we also must marry that to sadness and weeping over what could have been, over what it is, or over what's going to happen. It's probably very easy for us to remember the last time you mocked a bad leader. Now, it doesn't have to be like a church leader. It could be just that uh, relative of yours who's jacking up his family. You're like, man, that guy is such a mess. When's the last time you weeped over him or her? When's the last time you prayed? I'd ask myself that question as I, in recent years, saw men I respected, men I learned from, and them fall from grace, if you will, by their own choices, but large churches are gone. And I was convicted because it was easy for me to go, mm-hmm, saw this coming, and very difficult for me to get on my knees and pray for them and pray for their family. Jesus weeps for the same people that are going to kill him. If we never learn to grieve over the bad leaders that we rightly condemn, I don't think we'll ever learn to heal. I particularly mean the leaders that have hurt us. And I know praying for the bad leaders that have hurt us sounds horrible, though Jesus does say to love our enemies. But if you never um, learn to weep for some of those bad leaders, you will end up, I believe, enslaved enslaved to the need to see that leader punished. And you will focus all of your energy hoping that they're punished, hoping that they hurt as much as you do, and never actually heal yourself. That's what weeping does. It allows you to heal and to be free and not governed by that. Jesus generally weeps for leaders. But that's not the last or only thing He does. He warns them and he weeps over them. But then he he waits, which is very difficult. Now as I teach this, I'm not suggesting that you should uh, stay under all bad leadership. But there's some that you don't have a choice in. What we see is is Jesus give us some perspective. And uh, it's echoed in what uh, what Paul wrote in his final letter to Timothy, in the final letter he wrote. 2 Timothy 2.24 The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, even bad leaders, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance. God may perhaps grant them repentance. There's like five sermons on that verse right there. God may perhaps grant them repentance. You know what happens if you devote yourself to something that you don't have the power to accomplish? 
You become enslaved to something that God doesn't want you to be enslaved to. God is the one that grants repentance. You cannot make anyone repent. No matter how much you yell at them, no matter how much you hug them, the heart is God's territory. Right? I know, Aaron's a hugger. Hugging shall not lead to repentance. Proverbs 32. When we encounter bad leadership, we are responsible and called to warn them. We are responsible and it's important for us and essential that we weep. But we're also supposed to wait on the Lord. Jesus says something that um, is very interesting in verse 39. He says, For I tell you, you'll not see me again until you say. Now this is something they're not saying right now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, this phrase was last heard when the crowds were celebrating Jesus coming in on a donkey, and they were saying, Blessed is he, Hosanna, blessed is he comes in the name of the Lord. It's a reference to Psalm 118, which if you read is a plea for salvation and a declaration of royalty. So Jesus says that they will not see him again until they declare Jesus as King. What does that mean? It means everyone is going to declare Jesus as King someday. Everyone. Some would understand this particular verse to mean that someday the nation of Israel will recognize Jesus as King, and I will say there will be a remnant that will do that. But I believe that Jesus is here giving us hope in Him and power through Him to wait on Him when we find ourselves under bad leadership. Paul writes in Romans 14.10, a verse that has become probably well known, says, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Every knee shall bow, whether that's an act of God's love or an act of God's justice. We are to wait on the Lord for repentance in that bad leader, or trust that there will be a reckoning. But not devote ourselves to trying to change it all. Something that we don't have the power to do. We are to warn, we are to weep, and we are to wait, which is very difficult. But it's only difficult when you believe that you're stronger than you actually are. When you accept the fact that you are weak, and that your heart was just as bad and required God to come in and rip it out and give you what was a rock, a heart of flesh, you'll recognize what it's going to require for anyone else to change and to repent. But to get a little practical and to close this out, how how are we going to do that? If I have a, a bad leader over me, whether it be a pastor or an employee or employer or or a husband, whatever it is. 
How, how can we be expected to wait and suffer under bad leadership? How can we wait when other people are suffering? How can we wait when bad leaders seem to like succeed? They seem to prosper. Shouldn't we do something? Yes. You should warn. And you should weep. And you should wait. You should wait on the Lord. Because don't for a second believe that that individual is in power as a surprise to the Lord. Every bad leader is not a surprise to the Lord. It's not like he goes, oh, I put the wrong guy there. Shoot. Judas never saw that coming. No, he saw it. He knows. He's in control. He's sovereign. We need to wait on the Lord. And we must be careful believing that we need to help God move or remove bad leadership. All too often, we'll end up justifying our own bad leadership to remove bad leadership. Or, I was reminded first service, sometimes we'll justify our bad leadership because of bad leadership. Well, I got hurt by this guy, this church, this person, therefore I don't have to lead my family. The truth is, two wrongs don't make a right. But I would say that we have more than a hope to help us endure bad leadership and to lead, even in the midst of it. We have Christ. Let us not forget, I believe that change happens within an individual heart when they behold Christ. I believe whatever I tell you to do is impossible for you apart from Christ. So what we have to do in order to endure bad leadership is look at Christ and see how He endured bad leadership for us so it becomes the motivation for us to do it and how He did it in such a way to provide us the means to do it and also the model. Do you realize Jesus was birthed or came into this world under bad leadership? Like, they wanted to kill Him. They tried to kill Him. He spent most of his life under bad, all of his life under bad leadership that wanted to kill him. Jesus spent at least three years warning bad leadership that was keeping people from God. And being the Son of God, being eternal, we see that he spent all of creation, all the time that has been time weeping for bad leadership since the Garden of Eden. Yet, even as Jesus Himself was misunderstood and manipulated and mistreated and abused and falsely accused, He entrusted Himself to God. I'll prove it. Close with 1 Peter chapter 2. It says this, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. 
When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Verse 21, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth. When He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten, but continued entrusting Himself to Him who judges justly. How did He endure? He continued to entrust Himself to the One who judges justly. Warn bad leadership and then get your eyes off of it. And entrust yourself to the one good leader who will judge justly. But He ends with this. He Himself, Jesus, bore our sins in His body on the tree. There's the cross. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. Last thing. You will not be healed when that bad leader is removed. You will not be healed when that bad leader is punished as bad as you think they'll be punished. You will be healed when you receive the grace of Jesus Christ and then you'll be able to endure whatever bad leader might come your way or has already come your way. It is by His wounds you'll be healed. Not by getting rid of bad leadership. It's always going to be there. And verse 25, for you were strained like sheep. You were just as bad, is what he's saying. But now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. We who were bad sheep returned to the shepherds by grace. Perhaps that bad leader, that bad parent, that bad friend, that bad relative, that bad dude or dudette jacking up their family. Perhaps God will grant them repentance. We'll pray that we, they do. Until then, we'll trust ourselves to the Savior who is returning for us. And this is the celebration of that. It's first and foremost a reminder of our own brokenness, of our own bad leadership. And as we come to the table and confess our own sin and receive our own forgiveness, then we're prepared share that same grace, and it is a grace to warn someone else. And to be reminded that them changing or the leadership changing is not the hope. The hope is in the final feast we have with the Lord that is coming. And so we'll entrust ourselves to the Savior who is living, who is alive, who did endure, and will help us endure. Galatians 2.20 For I have been crucified with Christ, but no longer I live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh I live in faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered Himself up for me. I live through Christ. I do a leadership, bad leadership through Christ. I am a better leader through Christ. And without Christ, I'm a horrible leader. We warn through Christ, we weep through Christ, and we wait on Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we thank You for Your grace. 
Father, do not let us become prideful as we, or our flesh wants to play the compare game. Instead of warning people out of love, we warn them out of pride. Instead of weeping over our own sin and weeping over the sin of others, we fake it, we mock it. Lord, would you help us to endure? Would you help us to to love even bad leaders, recognizing that they're no worse than us? But we're going to entrust ourselves to you, Lord. We recognize that we're in a broken world. We recognize that we rebuke in sin at times. And would you forgive us where we have? Would you forgive us where, where we have uh, taken things public where we shouldn't have? Where we have criticized privately instead of taking it directly? Where we've just ignored and dismissed people because we didn't like them, not because they were somehow unbiblically in sin? Would you help us to understand the depth of your love, the love you have for us, so that we can show that same kind of love even to our enemies? Only you can accomplish that, Lord. Thank you for loving us so much. Thank you for your patience with us. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.